Good morning. I got chocolate, so I feel very special. It's made the day special. Hope yours will be as well. I'll be reading from Paul's letter to the Romans this morning, chapter 7, verses 15 through 25. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer that I, that it's, this is hard to read. It is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I am a slave to the law of God, but my flesh, I am a slave to the law of sin. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Almost it seems as if you um, should be a good tongue twister, right? For the, uh, <laughs> I'm doing what I don't want to do, and I'm not doing what I should do. So, yeah. So, just a few, um, few house cleaning things before we, oh, good, it is working. So, before we do begin, you'll find outside the Narthex uh, kind of atrium, kind of big area on a table there, we have a sheet called Recovering Lent with some guidance for each day during Lent. Uh, except for the Sundays, uh, because those are many Easter's. So for the 40 days leaning up from Ash Wednesday all the way to the Saturday before Easter, of some ways that you can keep with us during this sermon series. Um, we've tried to match it up, but you'll see that some of it goes a little bit ahead, some a little bit behind. Uh, but if you follow that, you'll be right there with it. We have some printed copies. However, if you can do the Facebook even halfway decent, then Parkway will be blasting it out every morning. And so some suggestions, some ways that we might practice in this ways to recover Lent. Uh, not just personally, not just privately, but to all uh, neighbors and friends. So uh, a couple of other housekeeping uh, tips. You might wonder why we're doing this. Why do we decide to match this series up, call it Recovering Lent, um, and also match it up with some recovery stuff? Well. Brief history, and this is a very, very short brief history. So if you want to know more, yeah, you'll, you have to make friends with the Google. So, uh, so here it is. Uh, you may not know that the history of the 12 steps actually come from the eight steps used by the Oxford group. Um, 
Bill W. and Sam Shoemaker took the eight steps and expanded it to 12, and that become what is known throughout all of the 12-step groups that are out there. Now, the Oxford group took their eight steps, interesting enough, from John Wesley's Oxford movement, um, in which they garnered the nickname of being Methodist, uh, which at the time was considered an insult to, to them, but it was through his talk of holiness, uh, privately and publicly, that they took those eight steps, and they meant those eight steps of how do we lead people to transformation. And tr as we all know, transformation rarely, if ever, is not a lightning bolt experience, rarely, if ever, happens just overnight. It takes time. Like, um, like making good pickles, uh, or since we're in the South, making good gumbo. No matter how much we learn to try to find some way to cheat, as soon as we take one test, we can tell, right? So, um, same thing. So, this journey of Lent, uh, if you really want it to be the best that it can be, here's some ways that you can help, uh, some homework, if you would, throughout this journey of Lent. Um, one, here's how our series is divided. Uh, steps one, two, and three are all about peace with God. Four through seven, peace with self. Eight and nine, peace with others. And then 10 through 12, keeping the peace. So now we're finally going to wrap this up. So here's some things along the way. Uh, one, put it on paper. So anything that you're experiencing, either through the sermon series, through the Lenten journey that, that's following um, each day, or if you want to take some extra homework, put it on paper. Get it outside of your head, put it on paper, number one. Number two, find a close confidant to share that with. Um, co-worker, friend, family member, but someone outside of yourself that you can begin processing some of the stuff that's rolling in around in your head. So, uh, you know, so that they can remind you you're not crazy, that, right? Or maybe they do remind you that you are crazy, but I'm here with you in the crazy, all right? So, um, and then lastly, explore this like a journey. Have a sense of adventure for it. So if you want to chase a few rabbit trails here and there, that's okay. Um, and so think of it as, as a sense of adventure. And trust me, by the end of these 40 days, um, Easter will truly come alive because worship won't just happen in here, but it happens in here. So, um, so as a part of that, why don't we do this? Uh, why don't we begin once again in uh, just a moment of silence and, and prayer. Let us pray. Um, gracious and loving God, um, yeah, uh, speak to us in innermost being. Speak to us in heart, mind, body, and soul that we may give all of that and all of our strength to you. Um, help us to take one foot forward, one word forward one thought forward, and then guide us, lead us, renew us, and strengthen us for the journey ahead that we may be known by whose we are. Uh, this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So, um, I will say on, on this journey, as Bruce asked me to head us off, since I, I do a lot of uh, recovery ministry, I began to think about you know, all the things that I that I do, and I will say I am very partial to 12-step groups because for the most part, 12-step groups make sense to me. Uh, here's why they make sense is there is, there's nothing perfect about it. It's just a bunch of sick people trying to help each other get better, and they do. There's no kind of um, 
head authority thundering about how wrong others are, or claiming absolute wisdom about anything. <laughs> Just folks learning the hard way that they need God, they need each other, and they need the clean house. Um, so walk into any 12-step meeting and you will find the same human weakness, the same jealousy, the same pettiness, the same fussiness that you'll find anywhere else. Why? Because it's made up of us, right? Um, they bring all of that, and um, that's just the way people are. Um, but the meetings, you know, typically, usually, hopefully, do not judge. And eventually, if you make enough, they'll lead you that, to this realization, this physicality, that they're not judging you. Wherever you are, you're right where you need to be. And then they help you, guide you more further in that journey, wherever that may be as well. The meeting also applauds the sharing of weakness uh, instead of false fronts. The meeting expects people to talk about themselves and not others. Um, in fact, the meeting won't let me get away with blaming all of my problems on someone else or something else. And if I do, someone in the back will usually say these three, wor uh, three words, keep coming back. Right? It's just a gentle reminder <laughs> that I might need to soak in some of this stuff a little bit more. Um, now, all of this stems from the fact that the starting point of any 12-step group is a common problem. You don't walk into a 12-step meeting to prove anything to others except that you have a problem. In fact, you don't even have to prove that you have a problem. All you have to do is bring a willingness to stop. X, Y, or Z. That's it. Um, so um, the group is made up of people who reach the point where they know that they are wounded, broken, that they need to stop on some level. And that, I think, is also why the ch it, it's, it sometimes bedevils me when I walk into a church and a church has become instead a place where people are trying to show that they have it all together. Um, I really like what, uh, forgetting it's been so long ago that I read it, that somebody said, you know, instead people need to show that the church is a hospital, that people can show up to kind of bear their wounds, that we might bear with one another and receive help from the true physician and the true healer. So we don't need to feel and to look like we're succeeding. Instead, to walk in the door admitting, hey, I've done it once again. <laughs> I've stumbled. I failed. Uh, I haven't done what I should have done, right? And I'm doing what I should not have done. So, in theory, the church should be a lot like a 12-step group because we all start on the same ground, admitting our wounds, admitting our brokenness, admitting that we are all sinners. Um, so, in some way, yeah. Um, the church should be like a Sinners Anonymous meeting, right? So, hi, my name is David. I'm a sinner. <laughs> and then everybody echoes, hi, David. <laughs> you can do that. So, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. So it makes the speaker a little less nervous, the fact that they kind of bear themselves uh, with this. Um, and we can't help it. My sin takes one form. Your sin takes another form. And we're all caught in the same problem. It's not even my fault that I'm a sinner, because even Paul reminds us this earlier in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not some of us, not a few of us, but all 
That includes me. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it was said many years ago um, from, from one researcher in, in the field that I find myself that our current society shows all the signs of classic addiction. And maybe addiction is a helpful metaphor for what the biblical tradition calls sin, because we've, um, we've all got our bristles up when we use the word sin, right? <laughs> we all kind of imagine some preacher up in the pulpit going, sinner, right? <laughs> and then we're going, who, me? <laughs> and um, and it, 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 we're immediately on guard. Um, so if so, it's helpful to see it as a disease, a very destructive disease, instead of merely something that, um, that was culpable, punishable, or even made God unhappy about us. Uh, and if sin indeed makes God unhappy, I believe it's because God desires nothing more than our healing and our wholeness. Because that was Jesus' whole ministry, was to teach us about what God is really like. Instead of God waiting to kind of squash us like a bug, God is wanting to bring healing and wholeness so that we might have all the tools for happiness. Not to rush us towards happiness, but the tools for lasting happiness. And even if we're not happy, the tools to move in and through life, because life will throw things at us at the drop of a hat that we're not prepared for or surprised for or didn't expect or wanted something different, and yet here we are in this mess. You know, um, I like the way that um, one pastoral calls it this way. It's our human capacity to mess things up. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just say that will know no bounds. <laughs> Whenever humans are, are involved in that, we tend to mess things up, even at our best uh, things. We are all addicts because human beings are addictive by nature. Um, you know, Richard Rohr says it this way, addiction is a modern name and a description of what the biblical tradition calls sin and the medieval Christians called passions or attachments. They both recognize that serious measures or practices were needed to break us out of those illusions and entrapments. Um, now, in um, a lot of the groups that I work, work with, substance addictions are merely the most visible form of addiction, but actually we're all addicted. Think of it this way. We're all addicted to our own habit of doing things whose way? <laughs> our way. We're also addicted to our own defenses. We're also addiction to, addicted to our own patterns of ways of thinking and only looking at things only our way. Or the way that we can try to control and fix other people, other places, other things. So, um, so I've got a little test just to see. Uh, just to see if you might have a slight issue. You don't have to show your hand. I'm not going to call you out, but just a little personal inventory. Do you, do you ever stay up late when you know you need sleep? Do you ever eat or drink more calories than your body needs? Now, once again, I'm not calling any names here, so <laughs> I would get in serious trouble. <laughs> do you ever feel you ought to exercise but do not? Um, do you ever know the right thing, but don't do it? Do you ever know something is wrong, but you do it anyway? Um, have you ever known you should be unselfish, but you're selfish instead? Have you ever tried to control somebody or something and found it was uncontrollable? 
Have you ever purchased more items than you needed after you leave the store? Ouch. Yeah, right? So, <laughs> so uh, hopefully I've covered just about everyone. If not, maybe you're on that list that, you know, you don't, you, yeah, you're, you're perfect. If so, see me afterwards. Help me out here. <laughs> so, um, if, you're yes, if your answer is yes to any of those questions, welcome to humanity. We are all in the need of recovery from some of this. And um, at its heart, 12-step spirituality is all about learning to stop playing God. The controlling and fixing that we tend to do around all of those issues, um, you know, we usually think, well, if I just did this more, if I just had a little more willpower, if I just did it this way, if I just had, you know, um, and yet all of that stuff is, is right there in the midst. Um, I saw it just yesterday. Yesterday, um, just, uh, just outside of work, someone was selling Girl Scout cookies. And you would have thought that the world was coming to an end because they had run out of Thin Mints and Samoas. I'm just here to tell you. <laughs> Including myself, right. Especially the Thin Mints. <laughs> um, so, so here's the first thing. Throughout these 40 days, what's one thing? Not a full list, but what's one thing that you've been trying to control and fix about yourself? It could be a substance. It could be a process. It could be, well, yeah, I'm going to, if I haven't stepped on toes yet, well, it could be maybe I need to stop checking social media as much. Or maybe I need to stop comparing myself with what everybody else is doing on social media, especially this week. It's spring break, and you're going to see everyone, everyone else is at the beach. <laughs> everyone else is, is going to the, uh, to the Hootie and the Blowfish concert. Everyone else is going to this. Everyone else is doing this, right? Um, so, um, yeah. Or maybe you're trying to control and fix somebody else's political parties or political beliefs on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> Give it up. <laughs> Just stop. <laughs> right? And as we're trying to do all of this stuff, Paul echoes this with us in one of the most memorable verses in the Bible. It gets quoted right along there with Psalm 23, with John 3:16, with 1 Corinthians 13 is Romans 7. Now, most of the time when we quote it, we don't know what book Paul says this in. We just say, you know what Paul said, right? <laughs> Especially if you're Methodist. Now, if you grew up Baptist, you can probably name Romans. <laughs> may not be able to name the chapter, <laughs> but you can at least name Romans 7. Uh, Romans, Paul said this, look, I'm doing what I don't want to do. And I don't, and I'm not doing what I know I should do. And it's Paul's anguish wrestling with his inability to keep the law. You know, he describes the law as this something that imposes impossible burdens. And the law seems to measure his sin. You ever, saw, ever had somebody measure your sin? You know, <laughs> you know, I don't know about you, but I do that enough on my own. I'm not doing enough. I didn't say enough, I didn't do enough, I didn't pray enough, I didn't read scripture enough, I didn't, I, and eventually it gets translated into, I am not enough. Um, and it resonates strongly with this, with this individualistic thinking that it's all about me. It's all up to me and the things that I've done. 
Now, interesting enough, we usually use this verse right after we usually uh, put our foot in our mouth. And, and so it's a soft way of apologizing. Well, I didn't really mean it to say that. You know, I'm really just kind of, I'm saying what I didn't want to say or I didn't say what I really should have said. You know, or we do it when we're trying to confess something, just something casually in Sunday school. You know, we give them the soft stuff. Well, uh, I woke up late today. It is, you know, we were supposed to spring forward, so I was late for worship. Yeah, and we kind of soft pedal it. Um, you know, it's, um, it's wrapped up in this. It's wrapped up in the same thing that I hear hurled a lot of people that are struggling with addiction. We translate sin and addiction as a moral weakness, as a lack of willpower, or an inability to face life. Um, and when we do that, we forget the person that wrote this passage. We forget the person. Because who wrote this passage? Paul. Who is Paul by now? The Apostle Paul. Here he was at the very high point of his life. Um, scholars kind of say he's anywhere from 55 to 65 year old, uh, a mature Christian. He had been a Christian for some 20 to 25 years by now. Here was the one who prayed fervently, who worked many miracles, who wrote numerous letters to the churches. Here was Paul who spoke courageously before the government, the kings, the rulers. Here was Paul who was tossed in the prison, who was beaten and stoned. Here was Paul, the most mature person of the Christian-centered life of the game of, of following Christ that we can think of. At the top of his A game, saying this, I don't get it. I do not get it. I do the things that I hate and the very things that I want to do, I don't do. That which I don't to do, want to do, I do. What is wrong with me? What a wretched person I am. Even Paul. And if we go back and at least start there, then we realize here's the beginning point of a mark of a mature Christian is the awareness of the struggle with sin in your life. One of the marks of a mature Christian is the honest awareness about who we are. The honest about the civil war that kind of goes on within our own self. It's a struggle with evil until the day that we die. We all struggle. We all say to ourselves at one time or another, oh, wretched person I am. As I said earlier, maybe you've outgrown this. Maybe you've become so mature, so holiness, that you've got it all together and say, I'm just fine. Um, you know, uh, those, there are other wretched people, but I'm, you know, I have won this battle. And as I said before, <laughs> see me afterwards, I want to be clued in. <laughs> so, uh, but according to the Apostle Paul, the mark of a mature Christian is a person that continues to struggle. It's a sign of Christian maturity, not a sign of Christian weakness, that we sometimes do by hiding it, covering it up, making ourselves look good at all times? No. Um, it's not a sign of doubt. Um, it's not a sign of double-mindedness. This is a mark of a real Christian who lives in a real world with real feelings and real awareness of himself or herself. We struggle with sin. Period. So here we are. The Apostle Paul at the top of his game, at the very apex of the Christian life, writing the finest letter that he's ever written, he says, what is wrong with me? How come? The very good that I want to do, I do not do. 
that which I don't to do is precisely what I do. The Apostle Paul. And if that's all that you get out of the message, I think that is great. That is powerful. However, knowing Paul as I do, Paul doesn't lead it with just one person. Paul is always thinking about the greater community. And even the cosmic community of all that God reigns in. So here's, I think, their first problem with this passage is even in our Bibles, even in the lectionary, even in most people's sermons, they begin this passage typically with verse 15. But I wonder, because verse 15 begins with Paul's wrestling and commenting on the law and his inability to follow the law and and wrestle with the law. But I wonder, is that really the issue that's at stake? It really fits poorly with the wider context of Paul. Um, Because if we check Paul's other writings about the law, uh, check in Philippians, especially Philippians 3 and Galatians 1, Paul says this about the law and his relationship with it, that he is blameless in the law, that he is righteous under the law. So I wonder if this, I wonder if we don't start with verse 15, but a few verses earlier with verse 15. 13 says this, uh, I did that which is good then, did that which is good. Now think of it this way, it's it's like a rhetorical question. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it is used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. Now, now, I know, as, you're, as I'm reading that, you're going, wait, what did he just say? <laughs> and, and, and I know, it, it can be a, a lot to break down, but he's using a rhetorical question to say, look, here's the way sin operates. Sin doesn't just operate in our personal life, but it has a social context so great that sin can even take the good things that we do and turn them against us as well. Um. Think of it this way, if, um, if sin were just a personal picadillo or failing to live up to some standard or the sum total of those failings, if sin is an active, aggressive power that seizes hold of God's goods gifts like the law and bends them towards death and destruction. Um, so imagine this, if sin is just the personal problems that we're dealing with, just the personal things here and there then all that we would need for Jesus to be is a good life coach. You know, somebody who says, attaboy, right, as we step up to the bat of life. Or somebody who says, you can do it, right? That's all that we would need Jesus to be. But instead, Paul says this, no, 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 no. Sin can even take the good things that we're trying to do and bend them towards destruction. Now, how does Paul know this? Paul knows this because not only could he follow the law, but he did follow the law. Even keeping the law so much that it brought him to stoning the ones who taught about Jesus. So we forget that at the very beginning of Paul's ministry, before he was ever following Jesus, that he was following the rabbinical law. So much so that it brought him to even hunting down and stoning Christians. 
See, he had kept the law, the law which was supposed to lead to good and to righteousness. And he recognized that sin could even corrupt that. Um, it's as if Paul is describing something deeper. As he says, we do what we mean to do on one level, then discover on another level, we are doing that which we don't want to do. Um, think of it this way. At one point, the church used to be known by this. There's even a great song about it. They will know us by our love. Yeah. They'll know us by our love, by the way that we present the gospel, and when necessary, use words, right? <laughs> um, instead, usually someone mentions church or even the word religion, and now it communicates something of shame and repression, and they know us by our judgmentalism. You see, sin seizes the law, and it instead becomes, you know, uh, something corrupt, especially when we use it to try to control and fix others. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's really shaped, one of the ways that it's shaped uh, the, the church's life is the way that we used to do mission trips. Uh, used to the way that we used to do mission trips, our sole focus was going over there, telling people that they need Jesus, and here's what you need to do, and then we would build or, or do something. Here's the way that you need to do this club, this organization, this structure. And then we would check out. And the people are left with a nice structure, but they may not know really what to do with their struggle, with their passions. They may not even know how to relate this God that they're told is loving in their own language. And their times and places now the way that we do a lot of mission work is we go there and we sit with the people. We may still do things for them because we may recognize before they can hear the gospel, they have to no longer hear the struggle in their belly. Um, but we now listen to them and see where are they moving? Where can they see God alive? And where can we help them? Um, so... So in this sin, it doesn't just become personal, it becomes cosmic issue. Um, as, John, as Paul reminds us, uh, all have fallen short in sin. So we may not be responsible for the, for, that, for, that, for the fact that I'm a sinner. I'm just responsible to do something about that fact. And on my own, I cannot. On my own, I only become more prideful or bitter or hopeless or critical or whatever other prop I may use to keep up my illusion so that I don't see myself for where I am now. Or I may want to even corrupt my image and not be open to the way that God sees me. Um, God sees me as something to love, to be cared for, to want to be in relationship, no matter how much I think that I'm unlovable or unworthy or apart from, and God is waiting there. Waiting there, as Paul says in the very final verses, in verse 24, he says this, what a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? That's Paul's rock-bottom experience in which Paul says, I cannot. And if Paul can't, and you can't, and I can, guess who Paul says can? If I can, then God can. 
when I finally admit that I am desperate not only for God, but also desperate for God with skin on it, for my fellow travelers who want to help each other get well with God's help, that's what the church is for. Um, instead, though, uh, uh, sometimes I'll walk out from church and hear somebody complain about what ch- song was sung, <laughs> you know, or the way that it was sung. And, and I want to say, wait, wait, didn't you realize that we're all bozos on this bus? <laughs> so get on board, let's ride. <laughs> and so Paul concludes this, uh, this final realization in verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if he says, I can't, then who can? God can. And our next journey is then letting God and being open and surrendering a little bit and a little bit more. Maybe surrendering our doubt, maybe surrendering our struggle, maybe surrendering what is that one thing that we need to work on this Lent. Um, and um, give you one other small homework then. Is, um, uh, even though 7 gets quoted, quoted the most from Romans 7, take time to meditate through Romans 8. Because Romans 8 is then Paul introducing the way that the Holy Spirit may help and guide us through that. And when I mean meditate on it, if you've read one line or maybe just one word, you're like, ooh, what is that? Put it down. That is your sign. Pray on it. Uh, keep silent and listen on it so that we may all come to know. Um, amen? Amen. amen. So, um, uh, let us go to the Lord our God in prayer. So, uh, Father, we all fall short. Um, and that's not, not meant to bring about more shame. Um, but to meant to bring about our glory because it's not all up to us. So guide us, renew us, allow us to rest in you so that your work might be restored and uh, lead us in a way that lets others know that you are moving in us and around us and through us, both now and always. 